We're in Genesis chapter 3 tonight. And uh, by the way, i got to say, I uh, couldn't wait to get back. We were in San Antonio with a, a bunch of the, the youth group. We had 17 total people, three leaders, 14 students. And I'll tell you, there is nothing like a road trip with 14 teenagers. Nothing like it. Nope, nothing. <laughs> but it was awesome. And I'll tell you, if you are a parent or a grandparent, or you just know one of the teenagers that went on this trip, I want to say, let them know you're proud of them. They worked extremely hard. I mean, I've never seen a group of teenagers work so hard and push through. They, uh, they worked all worked 12, 15-hour days every day. I mean, it was exhausting, the work we did. What we did was, uh, those of you who knew Pastor Gene, uh, those of you who didn't, Pastor Gene Leffler and his wife Becky moved out from here, Calvary Chapel Old Town, two years ago to San Antonio, Texas, to take over a church. And uh, they've had some battles over the first year. They had a lot of things they had to deal with in the church. There was a, a, a pedophile in the church. There was uh, a homosexual in the choir practicing homosexual. Uh, there was a, the youth pastor was sleeping with his girlfriend. I mean, they had just all sorts of problems that they had to deal with that first year. Uh, the first year, the church tried to kick them out a couple of times. And I mean, it was a real battle. Now the church has kind of settled down and is kind of becoming his leadership. And they've dropped down to about 35 people. And now they've built back up to about 70. But they are right in the heart of the inner city San Antonio. They're just outside of the east, uh, the south side. No, wait, the east side. That's the dangerous side. The east side is like one of the worst zip codes in America to live in. Uh, not for murder. They... Uh, that's Chicago, but uh, in San Antonio, they just can't shoot as well. So that's kind of one of the, the deals with San Antonio. So I, I know it's like, do I laugh at that or not? I don't know. But anyway, it's, it's a, not a great place. So I, I didn't mean to, yeah, okay, I'll just be quiet. So <laughs> San Antonio, he's there working kind of inner city San Antonio, and uh, they're, they're doing a, a lot of reaching out to really impoverished people there where he's at, and... Um, so they asked us to come out and help them out. And so we, we went out, and their sanctuary, they don't have a very big building at all. They don't have a lot of room for Bible studies or rooms like that. And they have no room for, like, a youth group to develop and start up. So we basically built two rooms in the back of their church. We Imagine if you just took one of these beams and you walled off a section and then cut that section in, in half with another wall. So we built a huge, two huge rooms. And um, it was quite a project that, you know, Gene sent me some pictures and I was asking for measurements, never got those, but kept getting uh, pictures. But it turns out the pictures were only like half of a room. So I didn't realize how big the room was. And, uh, but the, the youth kids worked so hard and they were re really uh, just amazing. So God blessed our work. We were able to get stuff done that I did not think we could get done at all. In fact, when we started, I was like, all right, Lord, if this is going to happen, it's got to be you. It can't be me. I, I just don't have the ability. So um, God has been so good in that. So we're back, and uh, now we're in Genesis 3. But I missed you guys, and uh, I was trying to figure out a way to actually fly back just for Sunday night and then fly, fly back again, but it didn't, that wasn't possible. So, All right, chapter 3, verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, 
We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Because I was naked, I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments for skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat. And live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Your word is truth, your word is good. Lord God, we do pray that you would teach us now. Help us to understand your word. And Lord, if we're offended, let it be about the gospel and let it change us. If we need encouragement, God, we pray that you would encourage. Strengthen us up. Lord, let us be lights in this, in this world for your good gospel. And we just thank you and we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. So this story here in Genesis 3, I, I got to admit a couple things about it first before we really get into the teaching. Because there's, there's an aspect of Genesis 3 that, that almost makes you want to 
not believe it's a historical account, but almost more of a, a mythical account. And don't, now understand, I believe this to be literal and true, so, so don't walk out quite yet. But, but what I mean is that there's a part of it that you have to wonder about that you go, what is going on here? I mean, there's so many questions about this. Like, for instance, the fact that the serpent is more crafty than any beast in the field. It says that, and it doesn't say that this is Satan in Genesis 3. I mean, I think it's fair to, to know it's Satan here, that Satan in some way possessed a serpent. I, I don't know the details. The, the scripture doesn't go into it. But, but it's safe to say that, that this is Satan. And of course, Revelation says when Satan is thrown down from heaven in Revelation, it says that that dragon, that ancient serpent of old was cast out of heaven. So John helps us understand that, hey, that guy there, the devil, he's the same guy that was in the garden tempting. But there's still so many questions. Like, for instance, when the woman saw the talking serpent, when the serpent started talking to her, how come she wasn't like, a talking serpent, you know? Why didn't that catch her off guard? So was this the norm or what in the garden? I don't know. But those are definitely questions that we, we, we kind of ask when we read this story and go, what is going on here? Like, wouldn't that alone be enough of a distraction to say, wait a minute, you're a talking animal. I'm out of here. I'm not talking to you. Maybe I ate something I shouldn't have eaten, even though God said I could eat. I don't know. But, but then, of course, there's this tree. God placing a tree in the midst of the garden that, that gives this knowledge of good and evil and, and there's also this tree of life that God wants to make sure that they don't eat. And, and we start looking at this and go, man, this sounds a lot like some of the ancient mythical accounts. Gilgamesh talks about a serpent in these fruit trees. And, of course, some of the Sumerian accounts and some of the ancient creation accounts have a similar story. But here's what I want to say about this. I believe those stories are really based off of this one. Of course, Moses wrote this much later under the influence of the Holy Spirit. At least we believe Moses wrote the book of Genesis. We, we don't know that for sure. But I think this is the real story, and all those other stories are based off of this one. And, and you, if you really have questions about the talking serpent or these sorts of things, when you get to heaven, you can ask the Lord, and he'll explain it all. To, you know what? Forget it. You're not going to care. You're going to be stoked you're with the Lord. <laughs> no one's going to care about the talking serpent in the garden. However, this passage is vague enough to know that it has to do with you and me. It, it's vague enough that, that we go, okay, this is, there's, there's application for me here. There's, there's explanation for me. I mean, this passage explains all the stuff we hate about this world. It explains why it exists. Everything that you and I hate. Uh, when, when psychos run their truck through a crowd and kill people and we go, why God? Genesis 3 explains it. When, when people do awful atrocities, Genesis 3 explains it. So when sickness happens, when, when all sorts of manner of evil is happening in this world and we're asking why God, Genesis 3 is the explanation. When we can't seem to hold together our marriage or our friendships or when we keep seeming to go back to sin or when we struggle with temptation, Genesis 3 explains all those things. So, so it's vague enough to help us understand our own issues and our own need for a Savior. But it's also specific enough to let you know that this really did happen in human history. That there was a real Adam and Eve in a real time and, and they really did sin. And he, here's an example of that. If you look at verse 20 of this chapter, 
The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. When you see that verse, you're kind of like, wait a minute, this is out of place. It doesn't make sense because it, you have the, the consequences for the sin and then you have God making a covering, but right smack in the middle of it, you have the man calling his wife's name Eve. Really, that, that verse seems like it belongs in chapter 2 when God creates Eve. And, and, God, and Adam names Eve and calls her woman. And, and we, we talked about that a couple weeks ago. So that, that verse seems like it really doesn't belong there. But I think it's almost in a sense that Moses, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, wrote it in so we wouldn't forget that this is not a, a mystical fairy tale. This is a real event that happened in real human history. And we need to recognize that. Another aspect about this is these events are followed through later on in the Bible. We have those genealogies. You know those really boring genealogies where you start to read and go, really, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, so-and-so begat. Those all go back to Adam. They mention a real Adam. And then, of course, Jesus mentions Adam a couple times, Adam and Eve, and he talks about marriage. And, and, and he says, before, uh, well, before Abraham I was, but, but Jesus mentions Adam in his teaching. So so if, if we're going to throw out chapter 3, we might as well throw out Jesus' teachings. And then, of course, Paul. Paul mentions Adam and Eve. And, in fact, he uses Adam and Eve for how we structure the church and the authority in the church. He uses Adam and Eve as an argument for that. And then more so, we know that through one man, the first Adam, sin came into the world. Through the second Adam, life comes into the world. Paul argues in Romans that it is through Jesus Christ, he's the second Adam, the, the one who was holy enough to redeem us from the fall of the first one. So, so we don't want to throw out chapter 3. We don't want to allegorize the whole chapter or say it's just a metaphor for reality. We don't want to do that. We need to recognize that this, these events really did happen. It's okay to have questions about it. I got all sorts of questions. I'm a really inquisitive person, and people often, when I ask questions, they think I'm weird, or they don't understand why. I just love asking questions about things and learning about stuff. And I have, I have a whole, whole list of questions to ask the Lord on that day, which I know I won't care about, but I just have all sorts of questions about the Bible. And we'll get into more in Genesis, like chapter 6, the Nephilim. We'll get into more questions, but... But for now, I want you to realize that we want to take this seriously, and we want to recognize that this is, really did happen. So let's talk about the serpent and how he talks to Eve and how he tempts Eve. He, first thing he says is, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Man, isn't that amazing? Did God actually say? The first thing that happens when we are tempted is to question the word of God. Does God really mean I can't do that? You know, there's pastors out there today that are encouraging cussing, using a foul language. And I've never understood that because the Bible is really clear in talking to us about cleaning up our tongues. And, and how can we praise God with one tongue and curse man with another? How can we, uh, you know, let your conversation be always full of grace and season with salt or, or rid yourselves now of all filthy language, the Bible says. So when I became a Christian, this sinner had to quit cussing. That was one of the first things I had to bring over to the Lord and say, Lord, I've got a construction worker's mouth. I, I need you to touch it and change it. And there's pastors out there today that they flippantly use foul language and act like it's no big deal. But, and then they try to justify 
why it's okay. Why some sin? Of course, we have the whole issue of homosexuality in the church. That's the hot it topic right now among, among Christendom, isn't it? And I mean, in this church, we're like, no, it's a sin. It's a sin just like lying, adultery, or any other sin. Homosexuality is another sin like that. So we, we don't compromise on that. But there's those out there who would go around to churches and tell you why homosexuality is not a sin in the Bible. And they're, they're apologists, so to speak, those who defend the faith, which they're really heretics and false teachers, have nothing to do with them, the Bible says. But as they share, as they talk about their arguments, I've been amazed because the things they share to the lay people are total lies. They'll say things like, in the Greek it says, or in the Hebrew it says, and those who haven't had Greek or Hebrew are used to hearing pastors say that and then go, oh, well, I guess it says that. And then they buy into it or they accept it. And when you look up, when you actually get into the wording and, and look up the words, it can't even come close. You can't even mistake it for meaning what they say it means. They're liars, and the truth is not in them. Their father is the father of lies, Jesus would, would say. They're following Satan. So the first thing the tempter does is try to get us to question the word of God. Notice that God had told Adam and Eve that when he put Adam in the garden, he commanded the man saying, you may eat of any tree in the garden. Here it is, Adam. Here it all is. It's all for you. Look at all these trees. We're not talking just manna falling from heaven for 40 years, the same thing. I mean, that was an awesome miracle of God's provision. But we're saying that man was put in this garden and saying, here's your buffet. It's for you. Just don't eat of that one tree, that one tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but everything else is yours. And so as he questions the woman, the woman says, no, no, God, God, we can eat of the trees. So she gets that right. We can eat of the trees, but don't eat of the one in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. So she kind of adds that into the scripture. And now whether or not she's adding to the word of God or not, I, that I don't know. Maybe her and Adam had a talk and they say, okay, let's just not even touch that tree so we don't get ourselves in trouble. That's possible. I don't know. But, but so the first thing is Satan tries to say, Hey, let's question the word of God. The second thing is, let's question the motive of God. That, that's the next thing that Satan wants to question. Notice he says, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God doesn't want you to eat of this because you're going to be like him. And he, he, doesn't want you, he doesn't want you to reach your full potential. Man, that's what we do with sin, isn't it? Man, we, when we're tempted to sin, to go after something we're not to touch, to take part in something we're not to be a part of, we go, man, I want to reach my full potential. I want to be enlightened. Or it seems so good to be able to take part in that. And God's saying, no way. Don't get involved in that. Don't touch it. Stay away from it. And here it is, Eve being told to question the motives of God. You know, when God finished creating, it says in chapter 1, verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Very good. God saw all that he had made. The entire creation, the universe, the earth, the people, the animals, everything, and it was very good. Do you know what the word good means? It means good. It means good. And when God does something good, it's really good. 
Not like when you and I do something good. When you and I do something good, it's like good enough always, right? Because we're the biggest critics of ourselves. But when God does something good, it means that it is working in its full intended purpose. It's not lacking in anything. There's nothing that needs to be added to it to make it better. It is good. And that's what was happening in the creation when God finished creating. It was good. You see, there was no potential for Adam and Eve to reach that would make them better. They were already good. And, and so when Satan tries to get, when the serpent tries to get Eve to question the motives of God, he also gets her to focus on the prohibition instead of the provision of God. What I mean by that is God has provided all the trees in the garden except for that one. And Satan's saying, hey, focus on that one, the prohibition. Look at what God doesn't want you to have. I think that's one of the reasons why the Bible instructs us to have hearts of thanksgiving so often. That we're supposed to have hearts of thanksgiving and be thankful all the time. Why? So we focus on the provision of God. We don't start focusing on the prohibitions of God. When I say don't think about the pink elephant, what do we do? Think about the pink elephant, right? That's all we can think about. When we say don't think about your sin, all we do is start thinking about sin, Right? Versus focusing on what God has done and the goodness of God and how God has provided for us, we're, we're less tempted to think about those other things because our focus is on him and his goodness. We're not questioning the prohibitions. Listen, every prohibition God gives to us, every rule, every commandment that God says, everything that God says is not holy, when you think about it, you're like, yeah, that makes sense. It makes sense that I shouldn't act that way or do those things. In fact, I would never want somebody doing those things to me. It makes sense. God has given me these prohibitions so that I might have life and have it full. So I might understand what it means to be holy like him. That's a good thing, those prohibitions. Rules are not something... To, to the rules of God, and when I say, I hate even using the word rules because we're talking about tender commandments that God gives to us, those commandments so that we might have life. You know, my dad told me not to play with the electrical socket when I was young. That was good advice. I didn't listen very often, but that was good advice. Every time I got shocked, I, it's amazing I'm alive. I'll tell you guys right, that right now. I was a boy, so enough said. I caught everything on fire, blew everything up. <laughs> like, I'm still blowing things up. Anyway. But, uh, but those things that my dad told me not to do were good things for Dave Johnson. They helped me come out of childhood with all my fingers. A pretty amazing thing. So don't focus on the prohibition of God. Focus on the provision of God. Have a heart of thanksgiving. Don't question the word of God. You know, in the 1970s, Fuller Seminary decided that they were going to start um, changing the definition of biblical inerrancy. And that the definition was going to change from... The, the Bible is true in all that it teaches, touches upon, and affirms in the original autographs to the Bible is true in its intended meaning. Uh-oh, now we got a problem. Because they were saying that, you know, Jesus said the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds, and, and it's not the smallest of all seeds. A poppy seed is smaller than a mustard seed, and therefore, we don't want Jesus to be wrong, so let's fix this. Nobody ever thought to say at the time, hey, wait a minute, Jesus isn't talking about all seeds in the whole world. He's talking about all the seeds that are common to these guys, that these guys would recognize for farming. That's what Jesus was talking about. 
So, so they started changing the definition of biblical errancy, inerrancy, and that's where the slippery slope starts. That's when you start saying that, well, why can't the Christian do this or take part in that or, or do this? And now you start having a compromised church. As, as the church doesn't believe the word of God, the church starts welcoming in compromise. And there goes the church. There goes the community. There goes the society. That's, what, that's kind of where, the way it goes. Of course, 1978, uh, a group of ministers and pastors cross-denominational and evangelical, got together in Chicago, and they, they, made the, uh, they wrote out the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. And, and, and uh, in that, it says that the Bible is true, and, and you can read it online. You just pull it up, Chicago Inerrancy or Biblical Inerrancy. And it says, in, in summary, in my own words, it says that this book is true and all that it teaches, all that it touches upon, all that it affirms. There is nothing in this true book that is not true in the original autographs. And th that's, uh, that's something we need to hold on to because you know what? The church is losing ground in these things. And, and we're, the church is starting to compromise in these areas. And as soon as you throw out the word of God or throw out parts of the word of God, what's going to stop you from raping the whole Bible? You know, there's nothing that will stop you at one point. And certainly it's, it's, it's within our character, Right? It's within our character to try to solve our problems. Have, have, you, have you noticed that about man? We're always told to look to ourselves. Uh, meditation tells us to look inward. All, all these different things in our, in our life tell us to look to us. But the problem is we are the problem. You can't meditate enough to solve your problems. You can't fix your problems because your problem is sin. And there's only one cure for sin, and that's Jesus Christ. I read an article in the Orange County Register about a woman who was concerned about uh, legalizing marijuana in California in the upcoming November election because she, she takes part in medical marijuana for her, uh, I, I believe, uh, I can't remember what it was, but part of it was depression. That's one of the things she's treating with marijuana. And I'll tell you right now, that's one of the biggest lies that people can buy into, that drugs will cure depression. They won't. Drugs will never cure depression. Depressions are a soul and mind issue. It's, it's, not, it's not a physical issue that you can just stay high enough. You can never stay high enough because the fact is you will always come down and you always go back into your depression. It's, it's, it's like putting a Band-Aid on an infected wound. It's not going to happen. But I'll tell you right now, there is one, one person that can heal. That's Jesus Christ. Now, if you're a Christian, you say, well, wait a minute, I struggle with depression, Pastor. Listen. Some of us do struggle with depression. Some of us are naturally happy, and some of us are naturally, naturally sad. It's just kind of part of being born into a sinful world. But that doesn't mean that Jesus Christ doesn't give you hope and motivate you to honor him and live for him. That means in the morning when you really want to stay in bed and not wake up, or when you want to stay depressed, you know that here's what the word of the Lord says, and I'll obey it because I love him, not because of me not because of how I feel, but because I love my Lord. That's the difference in following Jesus Christ versus trying to solve your own problems. We were um, in San Antonio on Tuesday night, uh, which was the, we were at the city hall in San Antonio the same night that the shooting in Dallas happened. And I actually didn't know about the shooting in Dallas. Um, I, uh, I got a text the next morning from um, one of the dads of, of our, our, our students on the trip 
And uh, he said, is everything okay? And I was like, yeah, it's great. What, did something happen? I remember, I remember I called over Mia. I said, hey, Mia, did something happen? What, what's going on? And she's like, I have no idea. And so uh, then I found out about the shooting that happened in Dallas. And I'll tell you, I couldn't be more surprised at the difference between what happened in Dallas and what happened in San Antonio at City Hall. If you look on my Facebook, you can see a little news clip. And if you're not friends with me, I'll friend you. But, but it's a little news clip, and my wife was kind of like laughing at me because the way the news portrayed this whole event was it was an anti-gun event, which that wasn't it at all. And she was laughing at me because she's like, how come you're at an anti-gun event, Dave? <laughs> like, those of you guys that know me, I'm not anti-gun. But I also don't think guns will fix anything, just so you know. So I, uh, she was laughing at me. I was like, honey, it wasn't an anti-gun event at all. They had, um, Pastor Gene was there, another pastor. I can't remember his name off the top of my head. The district attorney was there, the chief of police, and then the sheriff-elect was there. And there were a couple other city officials there. And they had a worship band on the stage uh, or in the front of City Hall doing worship. And all these bikers and different people, rough-looking guys, but they were Christians. They were born again, washed and sanctified. And, I mean, they looked rough and guys like, you don't, you know, just give them a wide berth, walk this way. And, uh, but, but they were all there, like, just loving the Lord and they're for the Lord. And uh, there were guns there. Uh, that's Texas. They all have guns in their hips. There were police officers there. And I thought, I thought the police officers were there for the safety of everybody because they were kind of scattered throughout the crowd. But to my surprise, they were there to worship the Lord. That's really what they were there for. As Pastor Gene got up and started sharing, he started talking about Joshua. And the reason why he started talking about Joshua in the city of Jericho, calling down the walls, the fortified city against the Lord's people, they were crying out for the crime and the violence that is happening in San Antonio. And it was July 7th, the seventh month, the seventh day at 7 p.m., that this all kicked off. And, and Gene had everybody, the district attorney, everybody in the crowd say, Jesus is alive in San Antonio. Seven times, Jesus is alive in San Antonio. It was incredible to see all these people. And I, I was there, I was hot. We were really hungry because in classic Leffler fashion, there's no plan. And so we were like hurrying and then go, okay, we got to wait around in the heat and be hungry. But it was kind of like, when we got there, we were like, what are we doing here? We, don't, we didn't even know. We were just there. And lo and behold, we get on the news. And so uh, he says, Jesus is alive in San Antonio. Then the district attorney gets up. And he doesn't talk about politics or anything like that. He starts talking about the need for Jesus Christ if we're going to have change in this city. He starts sharing the gospel. The, the sheriff-elect shared the gospel then the other pastor gets up and shares the gospel. Then something even more bold happened, which I was like, what? This is, what's happening here? They served communion to everybody. And, and so the police officer who I was standing next to, he had his communion cup. He was praying. I'm like, wait a minute. Because, you know, if you're there for security, you're like this, right? When everybody's praying, you're watching. But this police officer is there with his communion cup praying. And I was like, this is crazy. 
This is amazing. Praise God. We all took communion together. Everybody's giving hugs. And it was really funny because they wanted us all to hold hands. And I'm sitting, standing next to this police officer and this other guy. And we all kind of like look at each other and we're like, it's cool. You know? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> and then when it came time for that, okay, everybody give each other a hug. We kind of looked at each other. It's cool. <laughs> and we gave each other hugs. But I'll tell you, that is the difference between a protest what happened in Dallas and a petition to the living God which is what happened in San Antonio. What a different outcome. Same night, same state, totally different outcomes. And, and sadly to say, I, 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 I grieve for what's going on with our police force and we need to keep lifting them up in prayer. But listen, don't question the word of God. Don't listen to the tempter. Recognize that the word of God is true. The heart of man is inherently evil. The, the way of man which seems right will only lead to death, the Bible tells us. So don't look to ourselves for the truth. We must look to the Lord Jesus Christ for truth. Going on here, we see here in the scripture that it says, um, shame and guilt enters into the life of man for the very first time. Look at it, it says, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. Oh wait, hold on, but let me, I skipped one part here. Look at this, it says, she, she took of its fruit and she ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Guys, allow me to rant at you for a moment. Men, young men, old men, middle-aged men. Oh, that's me now. Mm. But allow me to rant for a moment. This, this, I have such a problem with this passage because Eve is there talking to the serpent. The serpent is getting her to question the words of God, the motive of God. She's looking at the fruit going, yeah, it looks good. And we find out in the narrative, it wasn't like she strayed off and she got caught off guard by the serpent. We find out in the narrative that Adam is there watching her doing nothing. Doing nothing. This is sickening. The husband, the protector, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, as Adam said in chapter 2. He's there watching bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh be tempted and fall into sin. And then he took it too. And then to make it worse, when God says, Adam, who told you you were naked? What does he do? He says, the woman whom you gave to me to be with, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. Look at that. It's the woman's fault. Or maybe it's your fault, God. The woman you gave, I ate. Man, I'll tell you right now, for men, for all of us, this should be that time in which we're embarrassed. And we should also recognize something about the nature that our great, 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 great father has passed down to us. He's passed down to us a nature that wants to stand by and watch. A nature that wants to not stand up and protect, not stand up and guard, not stand up and lead spiritually, but to sit back and watch. Turn on the game. Let the household fall apart. That's the nature that he's passed down to us. Men, the Bible tells us, be strong and courageous, act like men. That's what Paul says in Corinthians. Be strong and courageous. We're not talking about your physical strength. We're not talking that you got to beat Wayne Shores and weightlifting over here. <laughs> what we're talking about is your character and your holiness. 
You are the standard for your household. And maybe you haven't done a great job with this. Well, today's the day you start. Today's the day that the Word of God confronts you and says, you're not acting like a man. It's time to step up. It's time to start being that man of God in your household, being that example for your family, your kids, your wife. I'm, I'm not going to just cower and sit back and watch temptation and sin run my household. Don't do it, men. Don't do it. Step up and lead. If only Adam would have said, Eve, don't talk to that serpent. <laughs> Can you imagine? All the feminists would be like, well, <laughs> that was not right, you know. I'm telling you right now, if, if only Adam would have had the strength to say no, if only he would have been strong and courageous and acted like a man. But instead he conceded. Eve was deceived. Adam acquiesced. That's what happened. Don't do it, men. So they, in their shame and their guilt, now we have religion enter into the mix. Here we have self-atonement and self-protection. We, we see that they take the fig leaves and they try to atone, cover themselves, and it's not going to work. Fig leaves aren't, aren't going to cut it here. They're, they're, they're not going to make it. And so as the Lord God comes walking in the garden in the cool of the evening, notice what he says, where are you? Now, it's not like God doesn't know what's going on. I believe God knows what he's going on. We ask the question, well, then why would God allow this to happen? Why would he put the tree there in the first place? Why would God allow, why wouldn't God step out of heaven right away and say, listen, you crafty old serpent and tear him apart? Why wouldn't God do that? Listen, freedom is not free if we don't have choices. If, if God has to continually program Adam so that he can't make a free choice, then there's no love there. And certainly we value love. If, if Adam can't make a choice, if Eve can't make a choice, there's no freedom. And God wants his people to be free. That you have a free choice, a free will. Doesn't mean God's okay with it. Certainly he's not. He's a holy God. But here he is saying, where are you? Where are you, Adam? I love this because he doesn't say, come out of that bush, Adam. He says, where are you? He's a good shepherd. Even here in Genesis 3, he's a good shepherd. Like a shepherd coaxes his sheep out. Come on. Come on out here. What's going on? What would you do? Who told you you were naked? For the first time, they recognize their shame and their sin. And so they begin to say, now we have the curse. We receive the curse. And, of course, the, the serpent here is cursed to eat the dust of the earth all of its days. Isaiah 65, 25 actually tells us that the serpent will continue to eat dust in the millennial kingdom. Um, and then we have the enmity between the seed of the serpent, or the, actually, really, it's the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, and the serpent. And what this is saying here is that here's our first promise of a coming Savior right here. This is the promise of the virgin birth between your offspring or this, your seed, Eve, and the serpent. And, and here's what it says. He, your offspring, Eve, will crush his head. Your offspring will crush the serpent. That's what Jesus Christ did. Praise God on that cross. And eventually we know he'll put an end to sin. And of course we have multiplied childbirth pain. And then Adam has uh, this toil that he's going to have to deal with. But notice that there were never marital problems in the garden. Everything was good. Everything was how it was supposed to be until sin entered the world. Listen, 
If you're struggling in your marriage, I want to challenge you on this. Recognize that the struggles in my marriage are because we're sinners. Right now, I'll tell you right, we're sinners. And we've got to get to church. We've got to be confronted with the word. We've got to get into the word. We've got to submit ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ and let him start changing us because we are the problem. We start with ourselves. I am the problem. And we start bringing ourselves before the Lord all the time. Notice that in the curse of the Eve, it says, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now, guys, desire for your husband is not what you and I would like it to mean. What it means is that her desire is to usurp any authority and your desire is to cause dominion over your wife. Not at all the way God wants a marriage relationship to be. God wants it to be that the husband is loving his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And the wife is submitting to her husband, saying, yeah, I'll humble myself before you. And, and, and I'll serve also. So we have this mutual submission happening in a marriage relationship. And here, as a result of the sin, we now have tension and contention going on between the married couple. Last thing we see is that Adam's going to work hard. He's going to work really hard. And out of the dust, rather than just tending to the garden and taking care of it and finding purpose in that, he's going to strain and strive to survive at this point. It's, it's a major toil for Adam as, as he strives and deals with thorns and all the problems of the earth. And this is part of the curse on creation that comes as the result of sin. And then, of course, we have the, the driving out of the garden that God says, okay, you got to go. Now, here's what I want to tell you. Revelation tells us that those who conquer, those who are found in the Lamb, Actually, the letter in the church in Ephesus, the promise is that you and I will have a right to eat of the tree of life. This tree that, that God set a sword before and a cherubim to guard, that tree we actually have access to through Jesus Christ. And, and you can read about that in Revelation. So here's what I want to challenge you on church. If you're struggling with sin, recognize that the Lord Jesus Christ has paid the price for you. He is the answer. Paul tells us in Corinthians, no temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but when the te- with the temptation, he will also always provide the way of escape for you. You can trust the Lord. He won't lead you astray. His word is truth. Don't question it. If, if you're in a place where you need to, to get your thinking right, you, you, you need to, to bring this sin that you've been tangled in, this snake that's wrapped around you and won't let you go. You bring it before the Lord Jesus Christ. You bow before him and you say, Lord God, I need you to wash me. I need my brain washed. I need my heart washed. I need my soul washed. I need my hands washed. I need to be washed all over. Like Peter said, all right, Lord, not just my feet, my whole body, just transform me. That's what I need. That's the challenge for you if you're dealing with sin in your life. You just bring it to Jesus. Let his power come over you and change you and transform you. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the hope that we have. And Lord, as we grieve with the creation, as we see things like what happened in Louisiana today, uh, what happened in Dallas, what happened in Nice, Lord God, we pray, forgive, come, 
Lord, help us to be lights and agents of change. Help us to be faithful with your gospel. For those of you in here tonight that know you, you need to be washed. You need to confess a sin. You just pray, Lord Jesus, take my sin. Take my shame. Cover me with a covering that is everlasting. Not a skin that will deteriorate. Not a calf skin, but Lord, your sacrifice on that cross. Clothe me in white. I'm ready to follow you, Lord Jesus. Praise you, Lord.